Welcome to The Caleb Show. This is a show about the Bible, about renewing, and about the mind, where every week we discuss how the Word of God is sufficient for day-to-day living, no matter what is happening in your life. You will be challenged to make the Bible an essential part of your thinking and living. Join us now as we investigate the world with the ancient truth of God's Word. Hello everyone and welcome back to the show. My name's Caleb and this is a podcast about the Bible, about renewing, and about your mind and the kind of things you think about and the kind of perspectives that you should have on life in general and the world around us based on the scriptures. And one of the most important things to understand, which at the same time is probably one of the more overlooked things in regards to teaching of the Bible and our Christian faith and our walk with the Lord, is that when we think about Jesus, we are thinking about the Word of God in person, because Jesus is called in John 1, the Word of God. But at the same time, the Bible itself is referred to as the Word of God. And so we have then a Word of God in person, and a word of God in text or in book form. So, this episode we're going to be looking at Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16, because in this passage we have probably one of the clearest examples of Jesus as word of God in person outside of John chapter 1, of course, where it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and nothing was made through him that was not made. And then if you skip down to verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that verse alone is just a fascinating study. But John begins his gospel with this idea that Jesus is the Word, the Logos in Greek, of God. And that word Logos is filled with meaning and uh, and power, really. The word Logos is, is a very important word in the Bible in the Greek language. So let's read now Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. So John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine pre- sorry, wine press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So there's a few things I would like to point out in this passage. Now, first of all, this passage is illustrating a moment in history when Jesus will be coming back. This is a future event. Jesus will come back, and when he comes back, this is now how John has described his coming. He'll be on a white horse. And he's described him in this sort of pictorial language using these key words like faithful, true, righteousness, 
eyes like a flame of fire, many crowns on his head, name written that no one knew, clothed in a robe. These kind of things is typical uh, apocalyptic language. And it's hard to sort of wrap your head around it to a degree. But there are ideas that are being presented. And in Hebrew thought, action and ideas that that require action or have action to them are sort of foundational in their way of thinking. It's about what things and people do that determine their nature and their character and that kind of that kind of thing. So here we see Jesus coming as essentially a conquering king. It says he had on his head many crowns. Now the gospels are portraying Jesus as a suffering servant as a lamb of God for sacrifice. That's how the gospels are portraying him. It's not portraying him as a conquering king. So much of the crucifixion narratives in the Gospels are referring back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is sort of the key passage in the mind of the writers of the Gospels of the death of Jesus. And so there's constant reference back, both explicitly in a direct quote, but also uh, just sort of woven into the text. It sort of breathes out Psalm 22. But this passage, I'm going to suggest, is getting more toward a Psalm 18 approach. When you read Psalm 18, it's a prayer of David, and it describes sort of God in a much more conquering, kingly way, is how David is describing him, that he is, David is able, through the power of God, to conquer his enemies and this kind of thing. So, if you read those two chapters of Psalms, 22 and 18, uh, next to each other, sort of in parallel, what you'll find is one is very clearly being uh, fulfilled in the Gospels, and the other one is a sort of yet-to-happen fulfillment, which is now what we're seeing here. So, when Jesus comes the first time, it's as a suffering servant. When Jesus comes the second time, it'll be the exact opposite. He will be a conquering king. So, it says here that he is faithful. I saw heaven opened, and he who sat on the horse was called faithful and true. Now, in my Bible, which is a New King James, the word faithful there is capitalized, and so is the word true. So, the translators of the New King James must have understood these to be sort of titles or actual names of the person on the horse, uh, the names of Jesus. And the word faithful has its root in the idea of being persuaded. If you're persuaded that something is true, then you have faith in that thing. So, if you're persuaded that so-and-so should be the president of the United States, you will vote for that person or the president of whatever country you happen to be uh, living in right now, France or Bulgaria or something like that. Uh, you, If you're persuaded that that person would be a good leader for your country, you will vote for that person. You, ha- you have put your faith, you have faith in that person. Faithful, then, is this idea of living out that persuasion. So, if you have a chair and that chair is designed to hold you, you could say you have faith that the chair will hold you up, but to be faithful to your belief, you have to sit in the chair. Okay, does that make sense? So, Jesus is called faithful, which implies that he is uh, living out that with which his faith is in. And he's the one who is faithful. Now, 
the next thing I want to point out is that he is called, in verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. So he's called faithful and true, and his name is called the Word of God. This idea of the Word of God as a written text, so the Word of God in book form, goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments and to the time when Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, and he said, here is God's word for us. This is his law for us. Now, if you obeyed that law, you were faithful to it, is what would end up happen, was what would be happening. You're faithful to that law. And so, Jesus is the only one who can be called the faithful one, because he is sort of the embodiment of living out the word of God. So, when he came the first time, it says regularly in the Gospels that he came to fulfill this or fulfill that. So, he fulfilled certain messianic promises or messianic prophecies, for instance, Psalm 22, uh, but also others that, it, that the different writers point out as they, as they tell the story of Jesus' life up to his crucifixion and resurrection. So, he, he was always being faithful. And the thing is, is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priesthood of the day were trying to find reason to put him to death, and they, they never could. When you actually read about the trial of Jesus, what you'll find is that they ended up having to get false witnesses. They had to bring people to essentially lie about what he was saying, or at least bring not the fullest truth testimony of the kind of things that Jesus did. And so, because he was breaking what they considered important, which was the traditions of the day, he wasn't breaking the laws of God. And they knew that, and they couldn't pin him to that. And so, he was faithful to God's law. Love your neighbor as yourself, and love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind, to name the top two, and then working their way down from there, his way down from there. So, he was faithful, and he was also true. And this idea of true is, I like Ravi Zacharias's definition of it, which is that which coheres. Does it accurately reflect reality? Does the thing that we're, is what we're talking about an actual reflection of reality? Is it true? Or are we making it up? If we're making it up, it's not true. It's not a reflection of reality. It's fictitious. It's a lie. And so, especially if you're trying to pass it on as something true. So, his name, Jesus's name is true. And in John, what, 14, it says, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, the gospel of John actually points out that Jesus, Jesus himself points out that he is truth. And here again, it says that he is true. He's called faithful and true. And so, when you talk about the word of God as a book, we have to recognize that it does state several times over and over again that it is true. When we read the whole Word of God, one of the things we have to be looking at is whether or not it accurately reflects the reality around us. Does it cohere? Is it coherent? And so, the Bible itself gives the fullest worldview that answers many of life's questions. You know, questions of evil, questions of sin, questions of... Um, uh, why bad things happen, questions of our personal nature, of why humans are the way they are, why we interact with each other the way we do. It, it, it describes the righteous person, it describes the unrighteous person, it gives reasons why they do the things they do, and it gives the history of that person uh, to their conclusion and what will end up happening if you carry on going down that road. It talks about whole nations and what happens if nations turn away from God or turn to God. It gives us a, a history history of the world that is 
shockingly accurate <laughs> compared to any other religious work. And so, really, those who have come to the Bible, you know, like C.S. Lewis, who initially was an atheist, um, uh, the guy that wrote uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Josh McDowell was his name, there, there are those who came to the Bible with the intent of disproving it. People like, uh, I can't remember his name, but he wrote the book Cold Case Christianity. He came to the Bible as an atheist, and yet he and and others had to then turn to God because they discovered that what they were reading was the true words of God. It was truth. And so the Bible is true. The Bible in person and the Bible in book are both true things. They reflect each other. Now it says that he's called the word of God. Okay. It says that in verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And he came, in verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged, sorry, it doesn't say two-edged sword, that's somewhere else. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And it says that he, okay, okay so he strikes the nations. All right, so this idea that he's got this sword coming out of his mouth. Now both Ephesians 6, uh, I wrote it down, Ephesians 6, oh no, I lost it in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Ephesians chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. 617 and Hebrews 4, verse 12. Both refer to the word of God as a sword. And so here Jesus has this title, this name, word of God, with a sword. So he becomes the one who wields it. Now, in the book of Revelation, it describes Jesus coming, and then immediately after that, it describes this thousand-year reign where he then fulfills these prophecies of being this conquering king from the Old Testament. And so, when Jesus reigns over the whole earth, he subdues it, and it says with a rod of iron. Now, that is a direct reference back to Psalm 2, where David asks the question, why do the nations rage and why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth gathered themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed. So that chapter, Psalm 2, explicitly says that the nations are fighting against God and they're fighting against the Messiah, Jesus. And so, uh, it says in there that he will rule them with a rod of iron because when Jesus comes back to the earth, there's not going to be many people that want him to rule. They're going to be wanting to fight against him. They've been spending thousands of years trying to kick God out of the world. And when he comes back, he's going to rule. Now, how is he going to rule? He's going to rule according to the word of God. It's really that simple. If we understand the Bible today, if we read it, get a hold of its message, live by its principles, live according to the spirit that indwells us to empower us to live according to its principles, then what we will discover is that God's word is true, that his word is faithful, that it correctly describes and the world around us. It is relevant. It is sufficient, as we talked about before in our book review of... Um, uh, being imprisoned with ISIS, uh, Peter Yasek. The Bible is sufficient. The Word of God in person is sufficient. So when Jesus comes, he is sufficient to take the place as king and rule the whole earth according to the Word of God. So the more we understand the Word of God now, 
it will not be a surprise to us anything that he does. When he comes, he will be faithful to his own word. And so just as Jesus was faithful to the law when he came the first time and was put to death and resurrected and, and, and then ascended up into heaven, he then gave his spirit to us to empower us to also live the same kind of life that he was living and so that we can be Christian, little Christian, little Christ. That doesn't make us God or anything like that. It just means that the spirit that was in that that comes from him fills us to empower us to live out the scriptures, to actually obey that command, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. To obey those in the fullest sense. And Jesus even said that's all the law and the prophets. And so those two verses sum up the whole of the Bible. And so when Jesus comes, that is how he's going to operate. He's going to operate based on doing everything for the honor and glory of God and for uh, the love of everyone on the earth. And sometimes that comes across hard because it says in verse 11 that he came in righteousness judging to judge and make war. Now, this idea of judgment the word there in Greek is krino, and it means to separate, select, to choose. So, he, in righteousness, he selects, separates, chooses, to, and it is also means to be of opinion. So, he is coming as one who is faithful and true, and in righteousness, he has an opinion on what men have done. If the, if the people of the earth, when Jesus comes back, are of a mindset to destroy him, like in Psalm chapter 2, then Jesus will come and make war against them. Because ultimately, God gives you what you want. If you want to live a life separate from God, then you will go down the road of a life separate from God, which leads to death and destruction. Remember, the wages of sin is death, it says in Romans. And so when Jesus comes, if you're seeking a life apart from him, or, a, or in effect a life of sin then there's a payment to be made. There's wages that have to be paid out for that. And so the wages ultimately is death. And so the people who he attacks when he comes don't want him to be the king of the earth anyway. They don't want him as a one world leader or one world ruler. They would rather have one of their own that they can uh, you know, praise man. And so that's really what a lot of the seven men who rule the world from the grave, if you look at that series that we did, each one of them were trying to put man up on a pedestal to make him the one who could decide what he wants to do. If all of we as individuals decide how we live our life uh, on our own, without any reference to God whatsoever, ultimately there'll be a massive implosion, explosion, destruction of the human race, and we're all going to die. And that's exactly what mankind seems to be heading toward right now, if you look at the news in the world around you at the moment. So, when Jesus comes, he will be faithful to his word, and when he comes, he will find an earth filled with people, mostly filled with people who are against him. There will be some believing Jews on the earth, uh, all Israel shall be saved, and so they will be uh, them on the earth, but everybody else will be against God and trying to destroy him. And so when he arrives, he will basically have no choice but to go to war against them. And it actually says here that if you skip down in chapter 19 of Revelation to verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. 
and all birds were filled with their flesh. So the rest means apart from the beast and the false prophet, because they were captured and thrown into a lake of fire. And that in the rest, in other words, all of the human race that is a, that follows after the beast and the false prophet, they're the ones who are going to be uh, destroyed by God because they don't want him anyway. And so Jesus will come and he will do this thing. And there's really... Um, it's not hard to understand any nation that that works unrighteousness or, I mean, consider Hitler back in the day. I mean, he deceived the people of Germany. He went and started attacking other nations. It, it was almost like Winston Churchill had no choice. He had to go to war against this guy to stop him. And so Jesus is basically going to come and do the same thing. He's going to say, you people have uh, caused way too much destruction. I'm going to have to go to war to stop you. And that's essentially what he's going to do. But we must remember today, now, that humans, as humans, the essence and purpose of our lives is not complicated. We're actually here, we're made to know God and to enjoy Him. And if you give Him your life, He will give you His life. He will fill you uh, with His Spirit, uh, and there will be an abundance of life there, regardless of whatever circumstances you're going through. And so, if we understand the Word of God in book form, in text, we will clearly understand the Word of God when He appears and with what He's doing now by His Spirit. The two go together. We should never be surprised by anything that Jesus does in person because we understand the Word of God in text in the Bible. And so I hope that this is a challenge to you to jump deeper into the Scriptures and to learn from them the ways of the Lord. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please share them. Please uh, tell your friends about them. Please leave comments on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you find it. And, uh, and go further with the Lord. And we hope and pray that you find your sufficiency in Him.